Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast. I'm your host, Kari Wade Frazier. And today I have a very, very special guest. It's Sharon McPhail, the Honorable Sharon McPhail, who's a politician, a fighter, one of the greatest thinkers. And I have a beautiful discussion about many different things about her life and her journey and what she thinks about Detroit, how to stay committed to different things and your goals, and also how to stay committed to fighting. This is one of my better podcasts. We also talk about hip hop and the differences. This gives you some ideas about how to stay fighting, how to stay committed, and how to stay grounded. We're about to open up with a little bit of Nancy Wilson. Thank you so much for staying tuned to Detroit is Different, the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast. I have a very special guest, a friend of the family, auntie, somebody who is somebody deep into Detroit's history when I think about what happens in the city of Detroit and one of the smartest people I know and also one of the most practical people I know about bringing about change in and around the city of Detroit. Sharon McPhail, how are you? Well, after that, I guess I'm good. <laughs> okay, I will hope so. I will hope so. And here on this rainy day, because it's a rainy November day, change locations, writing Le Petit Zinc, Mrs. T, as I call her, Teresa Kelly's over in the side, working on the Michigan Citizen newspaper. So it's all types of things happening, and my parents are here with me, and that's how I know you, because you know the two greatest people I know, my mom and my dad, they're here with me as well. And... 
before we even get to everything, let's go to journey one. How did you meet my parents? Oh my God, it was keep the vote, no takeover. Um, and it was forever ago, uh, <laughs> a long time ago. And um, that's how I met them in the whole activist you know, community. And from the very beginning, you know, they were somebody that I, the two of them, people that I gravitated towards because they were so sincere and real and they were all about the business of change. Okay, now when you say keep the vote, no takeover, we'll get deep into what that means and what that journey was, but I generally start the podcast by tying people to Detroit. This ties to my Detroit is different website. So what brought you to the city of Detroit? Because I know you are a relocated to Detroit person. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Detroit? 1975. Uh, what brings most women placed as a man? Okay. But after I got here, I realized that was a mistake. So, okay. uh, you know, right. then I got a job at Ford Motor Company. I, I finished law school at U of M. Got okay. a job at Ford, and I was there for four years. And from there, I, my professional career took off, and I stayed here. Okay. When you worked at Ford originally, what did you do? I was on the legal staff, and I started out in um, litigation, went from there to corporate, which is things like, you know, the Dealer Day in Court Act and all that stuff. And... Um, so it was a really interesting experience. Okay, now when you came to Detroit in 1975, because I can only imagine, as I know a little bit about Detroit's history before me, because I didn't even get to Detroit till 82, even though <laughs> I've been here my whole life. I just went <laughs> around kicking and moving and everything. But what did you get from Detroit when you first arrived here? What did you see? Um, it was a city that was um, under the rule of a person of color, Coleman Young. And mm -hmm. for me, coming from Massachusetts, that was a unique thing to mm -hmm. see. Um, and to me also, the history of Detroit, the Motown um, sound was, I mean, it was like amazing to be in a place, although the heyday of Motown was winding down or had wound down at that point. Nonetheless, though, it was Motown, you know, and that was exciting. Um, growing up here during that time must have been amazing for mm -hmm. people to be in a city where Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the Supremes and the Temptations were, you know, born and um, honed their craft here. And so uh, that was still, there was still a lot of that. Um, people of color were, Coleman Young did not play, as you know, mm -hmm. and he was in charge and everybody knew it. And so that was a really amazing thing to see. Um, but, you know, like most places, the, um, power in terms of the economics was still not in the hands of people of color. Okay. Now, as you talk about Coleman Young, that was his second year in office. 1974 is when he first got into office, his second year of office, and you already said that it was a strong political base of black power that you just hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. Where are you originally from? Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. How many black people <laughs> are there? Oh, well, there's a bunch of us. I See, I've never been. People, lots of people of color. But the thing mm -hmm. about it is it's I don't know that you could say that it is um, a bastion of uh, liberalism, although that's what everybody says it is, but mm -hmm. it, is, um, it is very um, politically incorrect to be a bigot in Cambridge. And so one of the things I noticed about this place right away was the division and the separation that was able to be talked about in a way that it wasn't where I came from. Now, across the river in South Boston, and there was a whole bunch of stuff about busing and what they did then, and there were other places, of course, where those things went on. But you just couldn't say some of the things 
that people said here mm -hmm. to me. You know, mm -hmm. if they think you're different, then they would say things about Jewish people or they would say things about Asian people because they felt like you must share their prejudices. Mm -hmm. And so there, there was a lot of that. And it was unusual for me mm -hmm. to experience that. Okay. Now, with that, what did your family think when you first moved here to the city of Detroit? Just looking at Detroit at the time, what did they think about Detroit? What did they think about you being here and being a Detroiter? They didn't, I don't think they thought anything about it. I mean, my family was very much, I sort of was the one that made the, the decision. So okay. nobody really kind of got into that, except that, gee, you're all the way in Detroit. Um, how fast can the check get to me? Okay. <laughs> you know, it was a bunch of that, because I took care of my brothers and sisters all, you know, most of their lives. Our dad died when I was 15, and they were all little. I was the mm -hmm. oldest. So I became sort of an extra parent. Okay. And, um, there was, so I was the person, you know, the go-to person. Okay, now in that, you're, you go to Ford, four years there, U of M, what drew you to politics? Um, well, I started out, I'm a, I have what I call a workaround mind. I don't see a problem, you know, I see a way to work around it and get to a solution. Mm -hmm. And that you will find that, well, your parents are like that, and you'll find there are not that many of us. Most mm -hmm. people, oh, it's not done that way, and they stop, that's where they stop. That's not where I stop. It's not done that way, why not? And, you know, and mm -hmm. this is a problem, it's not getting fixed, so how do we fix it? You know, that's sort of how I think. So, um, you know, I, I left um, Massachusetts and came here and I saw some things that needed fixing. Okay, so what was the first step into politics is a lot of people that I run into say they wanna be a city council member, or they wanna be a state representative, they wanna be the mayor, they wanna be the president, and I always tell them, well, start off with being a precinct delegate <laughs> and then see if Learn you really like any of these yeah. political parties and how that whole thing works, and then from there go forward. What was your first launch into a role in politics? Well, I joined the Wolverine Bar Association, and you know okay. I'm a worker, and so the first thing that happens is I get to be an officer, secretary, then treasurer, then president-elect, and then president of the Wolverine Bar, which puts you in a political position because people are coming to you as the Bar Association of Color, people of color here in the city, mm -hmm. they're coming to you. So that whole political thing, that's where you kind of start to see it. I was also appointed by Coleman Young to the police commission. Um, and because I was president of the bar and a couple other reasons, but anyway, um, and a lawyer. And so he, um, I was on the police commission and I was watching what was happening there. And I'm looking at the city and Coleman Young gets ready to retire. So there were various people saying they were going to run. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I don't see a workaround mind about, among any of these people. Mm -hmm. And isn't that they weren't perfectly nice people <laughs> or any of that. It's just that this city needed somebody with long range plan to make sure that the gains that had been made were not only cemented, but that there were processes in place that would allow for children who grew up in the city of Detroit to actually have opportunity, because I could see this coming mm -hmm. where we are right now, even then. So it was hard to decide to run for mayor because I mean, who am I? You know, first of all, I don't, I wasn't born and raised here and I wasn't really thinking all that much of myself, but you know, I was looking at who else was running and I thought, <laughs> you know, I can do this if they can do this, right? So 
I decided to run. Okay, so from the Wolverine Bar and the Police Commission, that was the launch into politics. What Part were of some of the early, I'd say, mentors other than Coleman Young that you found when you came to Detroit that worked with you and supported some of the things that you were doing? Who were they? Oh, there were a lot of um, strong people in the legal community then, too. Um, I got to know quite a few of them. Um, Mike Walls, who was on the uh, appeals court, um, you know, uh, a lot of judges, a lot of the judges um, that Do I got. Do any stick out in your mind? Um, Damon Keith. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got to know various, because they were all sort of in this group around the mayor. Mm -hmm. And the mayor used to have Thanksgiving dinner at the mansion, um, the Manugian, And there would be about 50 families invited to dinner. It was a wonderful event, and um, I got to go and take my kids, and then at the end of the dinner, he would sit in the middle, and all the people would sit around him, and you got to ask him anything you wanted, but whatever got discussed there had to stay there. Mm -hmm. So that was a good you know, place for training, um, political training, too. And I was just very young. I was 27 mm -hmm. then, and uh, had not been involved in politics previously because I'd been in school, you know, and I had a little girl, and... Um, so it was just, um, it was a Coleman Young and his, the people around him that I got to know. Okay. Now, as you talk on that, being a mother, who was, let's talk a little bit about your children and how they look at Detroit and how they feel about Detroit. What did you think it was like raising children in Detroit at the time? Um, the school system had some issues, and um, so that was always going to be a, a problem, but mm -hmm. It wasn't, in 1976, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, there wasn't a drug deal on every corner and, a, you know, the, the same, the kinds of problems that we've seen growing over time. It wasn't that bad then. Okay. Um, you know, you could, there were some lyrics in the songs that you didn't like, but you could block them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it was, That's probably the songs I was trying to listen <laughs> right, to. Yeah, we could block all that stuff. Uh -huh. Music videos, all that. I was good at okay. that block thing. Oh, um, man. And Mom. You know, you didn't have to be as afraid mm -hmm. as you do now for your children. And um, the internet thing wasn't like it is now. I just, mm -hmm. I always say I'm really glad I didn't raise children during this time because this is, it's so dangerous. How did they like the city? Um, Angela wasn't really feeling it that much, to be honest with you. I mean, she was, she was, well, until let's talk she was about five, she lived in Cambridge. So, okay. you know, she, but she, she got it together. She went to school here um, for one year and they wanted to double promote her twice so we put her at Roper which is where she needed to be mm -hmm. um, and uh, then Erica Erica was okay with okay. Detroit um, so both your daughters that you had and Angela and Erica they both started liking Detroit or did they see themselves in Detroit or did they look at it like my mom's here and she's rooted here and that's why I'm here or what did you think because I've always wanted to like keep my plant, my feet planted right in the city of Detroit. Yeah, I wish they did, but they didn't. They mm -hmm. both left. Um, but I think growing up here, I mean, you have to know, remember also that I'm, I'm very, um, I was the super mama. You know, mm -hmm. you didn't go anywhere I didn't know. You didn't stay overnight at people's houses. You didn't, I mean, they didn't have a whole lot of freedom to do any old thing they wanted to do because I was not going to have it. Okay, no, so their impressions of Detroit were still kind of through the lens of a mother that definitely wanted to make sure she knew right. everything that was going on. Right, but I also was very much wanting to raise, I mean, I had two issues about my kids. 
I wanted them to be good people, and I wanted them to have choices. And so it was about school, doing well in school, and it was about having a, a sense of your responsibility for other people. So they did things like every Christmas we would get a nursing home, we'd go and buy all the people presents, they would wrap them, they would take them over. I mean, we did you know, um, feeding at the church, um, homeless, and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, they, they did it as little children. And so they came to understand that they have a responsibility for more than themselves. Okay, now being a mother at the time in the city of Detroit, what were some of the things that you said to yourself, okay, I wish this could be better, I wish this could change, and I'm gonna implement this change, because I believe that has to have an impact on what made you wanna be more involved more civically, along with just being in the Wolverine Bar Association. It has to be being a mother. What were some of those things that you saw that you said, okay, this is what I would like to see, the opportunities for other mothers, and especially children in the city of Detroit? Well, that's really why I ran for mayor, because I had a group of um, policy initiatives that I thought we could implement that would really benefit people raising children mm -hmm. in the city of Detroit. And I didn't think it was going to happen otherwise. Unless you had somebody who would focus in on that, you could, you could see already sort of the corporate complex coming towards the city that moving, you know, in or buying up property and not doing anything with it. Or there was a bunch of stuff that was happening, and I thought. Uh, as this stuff happens, deals need to be negotiated that get something to the city. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see that happening with the other people, so that's really what I was going to do. Um, when we were talking about casinos, my, my number one plan was to segregate the funding for the Detroit Children's Fund, which was you know everything we got from the casinos, or most of it, so that it would be in a growing investment fund, and every child that grew up in Detroit would go to college for free. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that was sort of the centerpiece of my campaign, too. And I was very serious about it. I did all the numbers, and I knew we could do it. And, of course, they all said we couldn't do it because they didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, so then um, I ran, and as you know, I won the primary. I think um, that was a very interesting and worthwhile experience in spite of the fact that I didn't win the general election. I remain the only woman ever to win a primary for mayor mm -hmm. in uh, Detroit. And it is not easy, it's tough. And while everybody else was kind of, you know, doing the political stuff, I was going door to door. Ma'am, may I come in and talk to you? I mean, for like nine months, all night. And um, that's how I got, that's how I won. I think about a week before that election was when they figured out I was going to win. Because I was not supposed to win. Mm -hmm. Blackwell was supposed to win. It was supposed to be Blackwell versus Archer. So they weren't prepared for me. And when I won, then it became, uh-oh, <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> I definitely think that that election in 1994, after the reign of Coleman Alexander Young as mayor, was a pivotal election and a pivotal point in the history of the city of Detroit That's moving nice. forward. Mm -hmm. It's going to be my last what if. I do a couple different contents on my Detroit is different blog. So mm -hmm. I've done what if Don Barton were to have a casino? What if Motown were to stay in Detroit? What if the 68 Olympics were to have been in Detroit? But my next what if will be, what if Sharon McPhail were to have been mayor of the city of Detroit instead of Dennis Archer? And I think the landscape of a lot of things in the city of Detroit will be completely different. And some of those hurdles that you had to face definitely are the structures of sexism and racism mm -hmm. consistently in the city of Detroit. And one of the things I'm definitely grateful for just being somebody that works with and has worked for Catherine Kelly of the Michigan Citizen newspaper. She's 
often pointed out a lot of the sexism that I sometimes don't even see because it's just the ignorance of it. So I'll sit on different panels or be in different rooms and it'll be, these are the next leaders of the city of Detroit and it'll be nothing but men. <laughs> or it'll right, be right. so many times where they're talking about this is what's gonna change in the city of Detroit. And I'll say, you know, it's no women in this room. So <laughs> kind of that same way I can only assume that racism sometimes works the same way in ignorance of like mm -hmm. it'll be just a room full of white men and not even stop and say to themselves okay we're talking about leadership and there's nobody other than white men in this room but that's and, because that's the way it's supposed to be as far as they're concerned that's why mm -hmm. they're not worried about it and you know mm -hmm. when you are and it's also the kind of people that somebody else is crowning as mm -hmm. leadership i mean they're not going to be people who rock the boat for the most part, the media, the, and I don't mean the Michigan citizen, because they're obviously different, but the mainstream media, if you will, the newses and the free presses and those people, um, they have a, a political bent. And if you don't step to it the way they want you to, then they will come after you. And I, I'm a prime example of that. I would say that you're one of the most brilliant thinkers along with actually someone you work with and we'll talk a little bit about Mary Kilpatrick as well and every time I hear people say the opinion of you or Mary Kilpatrick my next response is have you ever had a conversation with them mm -hmm. and a couple people pause up because some people I actually know have had conversations with them and I say for one you don't have the guts to say that to their face and for two you know if you got in conversation with either one of them everything you're saying will be pointed out step by step by step verbatim where you're going to be shut down almost so it, it's it's a tough thing when we talk about media and how news travels and how images are created because so much of it is in so many levels with the city of detroit racism is such a huge institution that has polarized people in the region for so long. I would go mm -hmm. as far as to say the state of Michigan as well, as Michigan is one of the few places that relies on the city of Detroit, but from a national perspective, but oppresses the city of Detroit from a state perspective. So the minute that our governor goes to Washington, D.C., he's advocating on behalf of the city of Detroit. But the minute that he steps over into Lansing, he's like, okay, Detroit, you are not smart with your resources. You don't know how to spend money. It's nothing but thieves in office. So I'm gonna appoint somebody to run things like this. And this Never mind been, that the state's in worse condition and that yes. 150 other municipalities in the yes. state are in worse condition. But let's yes. just talk about Detroit or Highland Park or Battle Creek or every place black every people place are. Every place where black yeah. people are <laughs> right, predominantly right. the majority is definitely one of those we, states. Um, unfortunately, the dumbing down of education in this community has been such that you have a lot of people here, many, many people here, who don't think for themselves. And they listen to that stuff. They, they say they don't, but they listen to it. And just the same, the kinds of things that you, you were just saying about somebody saying something. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had a mother in the conference room the other day at the school that I run, and she was saying to me, you know, gee, you're really nothing like they said. Uh, I didn't expect you to be like this. And I said, I could understand that seeing as you don't know me. <laughs> yes. Fact, this is the first time we've met. So you're, if you're listening to the mainstream media, they tried everything with me. They tried, they couldn't say I was stupid. They couldn't say I was a crook. 
They couldn't say, um, I didn't work hard. So they, they tried to say, well, she's crazy because she said this thing one time. Yes. You know, um, what I learned from that is don't joke with them because when you joke with them, they'll take something you say and they'll make it serious and then they'll try to make people think something's wrong with you somehow. Um, or she's mean. You know, that's the other thing. I'm the softest touch in the city. Mm -hmm. every, every homeless person here knows it. And, you know, cause I don't know if you remember this. I was on city council. All the homeless people got together and they made a, a, an award for me. It was called the Queen of the Homeless. They brought it down to city council. It was amazing. But, I mean, you know, they don't know, but they're willing. And that's also where um, sexism, gender bias plays a big role because I'm running for mayor in the general election against this guy. They don't know him and they don't know me, but he gets the benefit of the doubt of being somebody who can do the job. And everywhere we went, I got, well, why should we think you could do this? Well, excuse me, um, <laughs> you know, why should you think he can do it then? But they don't, you know, women don't get the same level of- I don't, I definitely mm -hmm. feel that some of that same, it's like black people with self-hate. Some of that mm -hmm. same hate comes from women more mm -hmm. than a man asking a woman some of those same questions and it's definitely a ceiling and as we move more into like the narrative of everything that's happened in your life as you're one of those people i really strongly encourage <laughs> to write a book like many of people i definitely want to talk a little bit about before even the 94 election mm -hmm. coleman young and his relationship with you and his relationship towards leadership mm -hmm. as i was at this forum and my mom and dad were there even and uh, Godfrey Diller was running for Secretary of State or something like that. I, I don't know what he that's was running for. That's what it for. was. Yeah. Okay, that's what he was running <laughs> for. And I told him, I, was, I said, you grew up in a level where you had a precedent of leadership and a hierarchy that had an organizational structure where you had Irma Henderson, you had Coleman Young, you had Damon Keith, you had Ken Cockrell Sr., you had Horace Sheffield II. So it was a structure that you could look to and say to yourself, okay, this is an organization and this is where we fit into this organization that mm -hmm. is a whole different type of ethos than I have mm -hmm. in my generation. So as you look at my generation, as we disconnect from politics or organization or anything other than self-interest, mm -hmm. some of it is because we only may see you when it's a time for an election. We only may see you ever so now and again, but we don't even see the structure within this organization itself, but you always had that. And he kind of gave some answer that I didn't necessarily agree with per se, but he gave a response. I did like it though. But with that, what were some of the things that you saw in the organization, not just of Coleman Young, but so many other people, Marianne Mahaffey, you have, it was a strong black leadership structure at the time that mm -hmm. you came into in 1975 and how that was throughout the city of Detroit. Well, I mean, everything kind of revolved around Coleman Young, and mm -hmm. people trusted him. Um, Mary Ann Mahaffey was another person like that. I got to know her when I was on the city council, and she be I became very close to her. And But she was one of the few kind of raceless people that I've ever known in my life. Um, and, and Coleman Young really was just very no-nonsense. You know, everybody knows what his favorite word was. It used to be my password on my computer until, uh -huh. my, until my daughter told me that wasn't a very good password. Mm -hmm. <laughs> begins with M mm. <laughs> and okay. you know so she uh, but anyway it was a city that you know I became because I sort of moved through it you know Detroit was not like this open social city for newcomers it really was very hard to get 
to be a part of what went on here. But because of the things that happened to me as the president of the bar and then the mayor moving me in as the police commissioner and then I became chairman of the police commission, from there I became the um, president of the national bar, which gave me some really huge you know, reach across the country. And um, so those that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. But if you're not born and raised here, it, it's very hard, very okay. hard to get it. You don't have a class of people you graduated with. You don't have, and I'm not a you know sorority person. I was too poor. I couldn't afford the dues. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not that. I didn't have a group at all. So for me, it was one by one. And Coleman Young had the credibility. Uh, the entire city um, saw him as their mayor, their person. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had anybody like that since. I mean, we began to see some of it with Kwame Kilpatrick, who was a young black man, and, and people are all into that, you know. But, um, you know, the issues that occurred with him, um, mm -hmm. and that was used by the group of people that wanted to take over the city as the reason why you should not, you know, support a young black man, because see what happens when you do. So I saw all of that happening. You know, mm -hmm. and um, we make assumptions about each other that uh, other people don't make about people in their whatever group or I don't believe in race. So they're people that look like them, you know. Um, we make assumptions. We'll, we'll say things, and people say things all the time about M Coleman Young, about Mayor Kilpatrick, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, just are inaccurate. They I tell themselves a story. And they get that story out of the mainstream media, and they have no idea how much racism they're swallowing whole. Mm -hmm. But they do. And people who are in power don't want you to have a leader that you'll listen to. They want you to listen to them. So, you know, all of this big city takeover stuff, it was happening across the country. It wasn't just in Detroit. And when they came to take over the schools, um, that was the biggest joke, I mean, it wasn't funny, but you know, that, that reasoning that they had for why they needed to take over the schools. You've been sitting here watching the schools do without resources for how many decades? Suddenly they have a $1.5 billion bond and oh, you just feeling so bad for the kids. You gotta come in and help them. You know, come on, you know. And the schools had been coming up, MEEP scores had been coming up for four years. They had just gotten the National Science Foundation Award. There was, if there was ever a time when they needed not to be a takeover, it was then. $90 million budget surplus that year. But they politically and through the media made people in the city of Detroit believe something was wrong with their schools and they needed to shut it down and give it to them. Okay. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of context to the listener. What she's referring to is where she met my parents, the keep the vote, no takeover movement. Mm -hmm. And what happened, I'd say at the turn of what was happening in 2000, it was a strong push from then Governor Engler to take over the Detroit city school, Detroit public schools because the Detroit public schools bonded billion and a half dollars, one billion, $1.5 billion. And as we've many times seen, the allocation of any funds generally to a group of people that are black of skin. And generally when I refer to race, I, I'm referring to culturally when, mm -hmm. I, when I speak of a thought process, but when I refer to a group of people, I'm referring to the skin color and definitely Detroit. And at the time, 
it was one of the most dangerous things that has ever happened because it was suppressing the vote, meaning that you had a group of elected officials that were not able to take over and do what they were supposed to do with the money because the state took control of an institution that was supposed to be a city-run municipality that was voted upon by citizens of the city. And it's one of the toughest things that definitely ignited my mother and father to get more involved, politically engaged, because it was like, this is going right at the forefront of what democracy stands for, meaning that we're good enough to vote you in for governor, but we're not good enough when it comes to who we vote for city in our city elections because it's just nothing but a joke when it comes to city elections and that was the narrative definitely being perpetuated and i say for years almost under any black leadership throughout the city of detroit it's been one of the things that the michigan citizen has always been opposed to as right now in the current news media metro times has this piece that one of their one of their writers wrote about the five things you don't know about what just happened with Kevin Orr and the EM deal and the Michigan Citizen has been covering that since the whole idea of what emergency management was. But for some reason in the Metro Times, it seems to be a more of a trendy way to look at it. But it's one of those things that also makes people give up on looking at what politics is as i become more and more apathetic to the idea that things can truly change through politics because it's a system i don't know if it even was set up ever to be designed to change things for black people but that same pride that i that i see exuded from some of my elders how they looked at a coleman young I don't see that same pride looking at a Dave Bing. i don't see that same pride looking at many of the city council members i don't see that same energy and thought process or organization in the whole institution of looking at politics now. So I wanted to give a little bit of context from the Keep the Vote No Takeover and then go straight back to your mayoral election and more so winning that primary. And right then, 1994, when you were running that campaign in 1994, and some of the things were happening with the media and so much was coming at you. What were some of the ways that you just stayed committed to running that campaign? Because it was so much, even as a child, I was really young. I was 12 years old, but it, it was definitely an image painted of you and an image painted of Dennis Archer. And just- Well, in the general election, I mean, I didn't have to put up with much of that in the primary. They didn't think I was gonna win. They left me mm -hmm. alone. Um, so I just did my thing, you know, okay. um, and I had a group of very dedicated people um, in my little office over on Lafayette, and we worked really hard. Um, we caught one day, the, we found the office had been bugged, um, and we, I mean, they were after, there were people who knew that this was potentially, you know, dangerous for them, so they, they were people doing things, but for the most part, uh, they weren't writing a whole bunch of stuff about me. The Detroit News endorsed me, as a matter of fact, in the primary. Um, as one of the people that they, you know, they didn't think it was going to happen, but they endorsed me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I didn't get that. I got the, the treatment that came about um, in the general election. And how was, did you handle that? I just didn't read it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I rarely read anything. I rarely watched any of it. I had, um, Coleman Young gave me this um, guy, Bob Pizer, who used to be a uh, Channel 4 news person, who was a brilliant man, and, um, and I listened to him. At first, it was a little tough, you know, because he was saying, you know, I was into, listen, I'm going to say what I think. And he was into, no, you're not. 
you know. I remember the day I had a big interview with Robbie Timmons on Channel 7, and it, there was some little thing they were trying to accuse me of. It wasn't a, illegal or anything. It was just something that they didn't like that they said I did. And I said, I didn't do that, and I'm not going to say I did. And he said, here's what I want you to say. When she brings it up, I want you to say, you know, Robbie, if I had it to do over again, I would do it differently. I said, heck no, I'm not saying that because I didn't do it. It sounds like I did something and I didn't do it. And he said, just do what I said. You're paying me, you know, to, to advise you. So I, all right, fine. So <laughs> I went in there. She said what she said and I said that. And she said, and then she said it again. Because she and was prepared for you to say I didn't do it. She was prepared for me to be defensive and argue mm -hmm. with her. I didn't. I did what he told me to do. I wouldn't have known to do that on my own at that time, but I learned from that. So um, she said it, and I said, well, as I said, Robbie, I don't know what, what to tell you. I mean, if I had that to do over again, I'd do it differently. She was like shuffling some papers and dropping them, and it, all right, just tell me what your platform is. I got seven minutes on the 6 o'clock news to tell everything I wanted to tell about what I wanted to do in the city of Detroit. Could not have paid for that. So, you know, I learned from that that sometimes, you know, you pick your battles and sometimes you let them say what they want to say and it doesn't matter anyway. So you just move on with your message. Um, there were a number of things in that general election. It was very, it was six weeks. It was very fast paced. So, you know, of real serious campaigning. So um, every, we debated. We, our debates were run on C-SPAN um, internationally. I got letters from Mexico all kinds of people all over the world of having seen these debates between me and Dennis Archer. And you know, I'm sure you remember the famous one where he stopped talking. <laughs> he lost his place. Because every debate we would go to, we'd show up and he'd have this black book. And he'd open it and there'd be a question and they'd be the answers. And I'm thinking, nobody gave me the questions. Mm -hmm. But I beat him in mm -hmm. every debate because I had a plan and he didn't. And so if he missed a page, and that's what happened in that debate, I think it was on seven. Or was it two? No, it was two, right, because it was Jules Perkins. Um, and he turned the page. It was the wrong page. He was trying to get back to the right page. And so he, it was obvious, so he had to stop, and he put it down. And the question that I was asked is, why you instead of Dennis Archer? And I said, well, we've actually both held the, had the same job at one time. We were both president of the National Bar. This is what I did. This is what he did. Nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing. You know, and so, I mean, it was, it was true, but he was very angry, and so I think that's what happened. He lost his place. And um, from there on, I was a contender. I wasn't just one of the winners of the primary. I was then a contender. And for a couple of weeks, I led him in all the polling. But we didn't have money to do polling, so I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. But I was, you know, really moving up again. And they had to do something about me because I was talking about suing the insurance companies over redlining. I was talking about the Detroit Children's Fund. I was talking about making sure that people who left abandoned buildings in the city of Detroit fixed them, and if they didn't, we'd go and take their money under state law. Whatever they had somewhere else, we could take it and sell it and fix up the stuff they left here. I mean, there were all of these things. Now, would I do that today? Absolutely not. I wouldn't say any of that. Mm -hmm. I'd wait till I won, <laughs> okay. you know? But, you know, it was my feeling that people needed to hear that what not the only, plan was. Right. Not only was there a plan, but somebody who was going to be able to execute it. And, you know, as a lawyer myself, I didn't have to worry about trusting lawyers because I knew enough about what they were saying and I could decide whether they were telling me what was real or not. And that was one of the, the, one of the few things about Coleman Young. You didn't trust lawyers. 
Mm-hmm. And um, he didn't himself have that background. So he, when he and I talked, he said that was one of the reasons he thought I would be a good mayor. And you know, he wrote this um, three-page endorsement of me, which was amazing. It's a wonderful thing. I still have it. <laughs> and um, he said, you know, you're going to get things done. I mean, I want a mayor who has, uh, well, you know that word. Mm-hmm. And uh, you do, and he doesn't. And that's <laughs> he even said that to the media. So you know, but it was about if you want to be elected in a position of power, and the city council is not a position of power. The positions of power have budgetary authority. That's a mayor, a governor. You know, a little different when it comes to the Senate. The senators have power because there's so few of them. But, you know, it's a different kind of power. Actual budgetary purse strings power, they are going to fight you if you're an innovator because they don't want an innovator. Mm-hmm. They want an agreeer. Well, that moves me to another thing to give context. And I've always told you this, and we've always had longer discussions about this very topic. And it's that civically engaged as you learn, as you talk about education systems, just period. And this is even on a college level. Local government is not anything taught in Michigan schools. To learn about local government, you have to be a person that commits yourself to learn the process yourself. And as you learn this process yourself, some of this process is like religion almost. If you're learning from somebody that doesn't really know it much themselves, then you may be getting secondhand information. But a city like Detroit, which is definitely a very strong executive run city, meaning that it's a strong mayoral city. Well, it was. It was, (laughs) it's still on the books, a strong executive order. I don't definitely think that a lot of that control is now under emergency management and the governor, but by paper, Detroit is a mayoral run city. And in the legislative arm- Yeah, the city charter is very much strong mayor. Yes, so as you look at the legislative arm and what legislation is, a lot of people, as I tell them this, is the legislation makes decisions on what would be funded, how can things be funded. But after that, the mayor basically will make a decision on how to fund, how to hire, how those things will be executed. Oh yeah, it's all about the mayor. The mayor makes a lot of decisions. The Mm -hmm. state of Michigan is a strong governor state, but Mm -hmm. the city of Detroit, as far as when it comes to strength and any control, mayor of Detroit is a very, very strong position. The same way I would say that mayor of Chicago is a very, very strong position. So to understand this and then even understand how legislature works and people even being in city council and so many people that are on city council in the city of Detroit that want to run for city council that don't even necessarily understand the functionality of what they can and cannot do. It's humbling at times and it's disappointing at times as well because so many people are lost as to what the city has control over what the state has control over and what the county has control over and most people when you get into the differences of even those legislators i believe county commissioner when i look at most county commissioners and their role and what they do and how to judge if a county commissioner is effective or not I ask myself how to ask if a county commissioner is effective or not, and but, state but you, legislator you know, and so many You just have things. to look at the, the role of a city council person is to vote for the budget and to legislate. City mm-hmm. council people have no budgetary authority to spend any money. They vote for the overall budget that's presented to them by the mayor. They have no authority to change it. They can vote it down. That's all they can do. Mm-hmm. And as far as legislation is concerned, you can make you know ordinance after ordinance, resolutions 
they really don't have the same power as an ordinance, an ordinance is a law. And so, you know, that's your job. And you have to first do your job before you exercise the political power that comes from being in the seat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I always believe that I, I can't have any job where there's any of my stuff that I'm supposed to be doing is falling off the table. And that's why I focused exclusively on legislating and then doing some of the other things I wanted to do because I was on the city council, like my homeless program, you know, all of those things. But what you have to remember, too, is that whatever the position is, mm -hmm. it becomes what you make it. And as I bore witness to what went on back then, I saw the, the level of greed that exists that... Um, was underlying the takeover of the school system. And remember, I was married to the then superintendent. And I saw all the meetings that people invited him to. And there was a plan in place. They helped to get the bond passed, you know, gave him a little money and stuff to get it passed. Because as soon as it got passed, there were certain people that they had planned to give that money to. And so there was meeting after meeting to tell him who, you know, remember, the superintendent proposes the contracts to the, the education, to the Board of Education. And that's the only way it gets to them. It's sort of like with the mayor. The only way the council got anything was from the mayor. The superintendent proposed and the Board of Education voted one way or another. And so if the superintendent didn't bring the manager positions for that bond money that, they, that the state people wanted them to bring, then those people wouldn't get elected or voted to run the bond program, and the amount of money that was in that bond program was so extreme, more so than you'd ever seen, because they were going to build all these new schools for kids. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of money. So that really was the reason why the takeover was born, because he wouldn't agree to give that money to the people they wanted him to give it to. And it had nothing to do with how the kids were doing in school because they were doing better than they ever had. Well, I definitely agree with you there. But I, I strongly always think that just the context for how politics works in this city, county, state structure, most people are lost. And that's even for they most are, people that... They are, but it doesn't even matter to them because they, they don't know. Mm -hmm. um, if they did know that they were voting for a person who has to know how to write a law, for example, on the city council, then most of them wouldn't be there because mm -hmm. you, you need people who know how to write a law, who know how to legislate. And you need people who um, can use the, like being in that position, for example, I was, um, I could get my phone call answered pretty much anywhere. That had nothing to do with the laws I was writing. And I did write a lot of them. I authored the ethics ordinance that they still use. I authored the, you know, ordinance against, you know, guns being in child care centers and libraries and um, I did all of the, um, you know, that adult entertainment crush those places. Mm -hmm. I was the big anti-strip club person. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, we did more legislation in the four years I was there, Marianne Mahaffey said, than in the previous 30 years that that council had been. And it was substantive legislation. So, you know, those are the ways. That, but still, in that position, you get to see what's going on. Um, underneath the executive and underneath the city executive Coleman Young people did not push him around they did not tell him what to do and you know he knew how to sort of cut the pie in a way to keep them from you know jumping ahead and taking over everything you have to you really have to manage that stuff all the time because if, if you don't sort of divide things semi fairly as they consider to be fair you know then you will 
sort of create a fertile environment for takeover. And that's kind of what happened in this situation that um, the schools found themselves in. Mm -hmm. It became a very fertile environment for a takeover. And unfortunately, people, and it's not just people of color, it's people who consider themselves to be white. Um, it's mm -hmm. all kinds of people. They just, they're sheep, a lot of them. <laughs> they're following behind whatever the mainstream media tells them. They don't know. And I agree. Mm -hmm. And that's the strongest thing. So mm -hmm. much of the political structure as people want to be don't even necessarily know the setup of it and the roles of the different It's all about greed. Politicians. It's all about greed. Because if you really looked at how many people became wealthy off of tax dollars, it would, I mean, you know, TV, radio. There was a time they gave away radio stations, I mean, for almost nothing. And so, you know, and you look at real estate and how people make their money. I mean, city puts its offices in somebody's building. That's how that person pays for that building. And then they become a multimillionaire because they've got this valuable piece of property paid for by the taxpayers. I mean, the, all of those things mm -hmm. that come into play. Um, have to do with um, one hand washing the other and who's getting what out of what. Uh, tax dollars are very significant. And once the um, corporate environment, you know, when the globalization of everything and um, many people who in certain areas of uh, manufacturing weren't doing as well here um, as they had been, then you saw all of this movement to take over government. And so at this point, government is more corporate than it is public servant. Mm -hmm much more corporate. I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, another question as we move is, is so many different things in your journey in politics and more so working with people. I want to ask after the general election in 94, what did you do? Um, I wasn't as troubled as many people were about that. I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to figure something out here. I was a lawyer and I was working as a lawyer, kept working as one. Um, and I went into a firm for a while, didn't really like that. Um, I liked public service, and I wanted to be in a position to help, as we say, they say in the Bible, the least of these, to help people who could not help themselves. So everything I did was about that. That was what gave me the most satisfaction. And um, so I, I did keep, with, keep on with my, um, some of the programs I was running and you know, mentoring kids and things like that. And then somebody said, well, you know, the decision came up at the end of the first Archer term. Uh, who are you going to run again? Um, and it was it from that time until the four years later. It was I was so brutalized by the media here. And there were individual people who led that charge mm -hmm. against me. There were two of them, one at the news and one at the free press. And I knew about it because there were some reporters there who came and told me, um, whenever we get a new person, they call them in and they just dog you out. They say all this stuff about you. They sent one guy over to do a profile on me with a direction that he was to you know, say bad things about me, and he wouldn't do it. And I think it had something to do with how they didn't give him anything to do anymore, you know, uh, because he refused to do it. So I knew what they were doing because they saw me as very dangerous. If you're not doing anything, people won't see you as dangerous. And if they feel like they can co-opt you, then they won't see you as dangerous. But they couldn't do that. So um, I, it came time to make this decision. There were a bunch of people telling me to run again. But one thing I knew is that Dennis Archer had been there for four years. He was cemented in the corporate environment. And he went to the golf club with them, and you know, all them meaning corporate people. Some of them were people of color, and some of them weren't. Most of them weren't. But mm -hmm. 
Some of them were. And um, so that whole thing was in place. And they were going to produce as much money as they could produce to help him stay in that position. So was I going to get into that and, you know, fight and have them do even more to me than they had done? And I do have two children, and my children had already, you know, seen what was going on that four-year period and how difficult that was. So the decision I made at that time was that I would just run for a position on the council. Now, I knew the council didn't have any power, but I knew I would be close enough to see the inner workings of the city then, and that I would even be in a stronger position if I decided to do it again. But all of this time, every year that passes, they're doing everything. They're trying everything they can to discredit me. I actually hired a PhD anthropologist to do a um, study on the media coverage of me. And I was the most prolific person on city council in terms of legislation. And I did all of this programming. I did the first pharmaceutical program, $8 a prescription. I did all of this stuff. They never wrote about any of that. Mm -hmm. The only thing they ever wrote about was if some stupid thing would happen, they would write about that. But the coverage was about 98.9% negative of me. Yeah. It's, right. It's not the people who were going to jail, not the people who couldn't no. get a grammatical sentence out of their mouths straight. None no. of that me. You know. If, um, if you Google Sharon McPhail. Yeah, all kind of stuff. It's definitely... Mm -hmm nothing of the Sharon McPhail I know. <laughs> so well, most discussions Well, there's a lot that is. There's a lot of positive stuff, but there's a whole bunch of... Most discussions when it comes to you that mm -hmm. I even get into with people because it's definitely misunderstood. Just as misunderstood, I think, as people don't really have an understanding of politics, people definitely don't have an understanding of you and your way of the process of writing up so many things and being such an effective politician because not just being an attorney, you understand the system of it all. And that's one of the things that's always humbled me as I always sit back and listen to how you're going to do some of the things that you plan on doing. Like one of the greatest ideas I thought that you had was Detroit City providing car insurance mm -hmm. for basically nothing comparable to how much Detroiters pay for car insurance right now due to redlining. Mm -hmm. And you explain how that system would work. You explain why the companies would be able to do it and why the city would be able to do it. And then you sit back and you see that it's meat into the story. It's not just an idea. It's mm -hmm. not just conceptual. It's actually going to be practical and it's empowering. And then it's revenue generating for a city that definitely needs to generate more revenue. Mm -hmm. And then you put the plan on paper and you know that it's more, I guess, chinks in the armor or it's something in the gates that's not allowing this to happen. Because well, it caused them to cap. raise $5 million for Dennis Archer when I started talking about redlining and how I was going to do a city-owned insurance company and all that. It caused them to raise a whole bunch. See, you can't. It's one of the things I learned. If you want to be in a position to do things, you, a lot of this stuff you just can't talk about mm -hmm. until you get in there. And had I done that, it would be totally different now. But um, I, I let them see too much of what was inside of me and what it was that I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, um, the level of uh, animosity and anger that some of those people, and I don't mean everybody, because there are a lot of really good people that are working as reporters and, and in the media, and a lot of them that I have a, a great deal of respect for, but the two I'm talking about, the level of personal animus that they had towards me made no sense. Mm -hmm. I don't know them and they don't know me. But it was just, you know, relentless. 
and it remains relentless to this day. There's nothing that I can do that they will say something positive about. But guess what? I don't care. I don't care what they think. I don't care what anybody stupid enough to believe them thinks. I have a plan right now to do some things to help some children who really need my help so they can think whatever they want to think. Whether or not I would ever, and people ask me this all the time, put myself back into a position to run for office? No. Mm -hmm. Because the kinds of things that I want to do have to do with people who really can't do it for themselves and they really need my help and they don't need me tied up arguing with the free press mm -hmm. or the news or any of them. You know. Okay. Now, with that being said, what encourages you more so as you continue to carry on? What encourages you as you stay grounded to say, all right, now these are the plans that I want to implement now, as you talk about helping some of those people that you feel like need the help to help themselves? Um, well, you know, I'm a superintendent of a K-12 um, district now. I have an elementary, a middle school, and a high school. Okay. And um, it's a charter, and I'm not into charters. I never was, so it's amazing that I'm there. But I was on the board, and I was asked to become the superintendent. And this is my third year. And um, this is a school that was at the bottom statewide, everything at the bottom. You could barely see the little bar down there. It was under state supervision when I got there. Um, no principals, no superintendent, no deputy, no governance really at all. Uh, this computer system had been hacked, and they had a very – 0% graduation rate that year um, because of the hacking of the system, but it was under 40% normally. Within one year, we became a Michigan reward school. I had a 98% graduation rate the first year. All of our scores started going up. They were on an upward trajectory even then in the first year. And um, I mean, we just really were doing well, and we're still really doing well. The bottom line for me is that um, these children had been move from grade to grade with no mastery of the material that they were supposed to have learned. They need to be able to do English, math, reading, science, eh, you know, but they need to be able to do um, analytical thinking and reasoning. And what I'm trying to do is to raise a group of children through this school that can think for themselves. So that means that's some basic stuff that has to be taught to them. And when you've got a school with a 1,000 kids in it and fully 80% of them are five or six grades behind in the most basic things like reading. You can read, you can do basic math, you can do a whole lot. You can think for yourself. So I'm moving all of that, the curriculum and the people that we had there the first year. My first year at that school, I had teachers, about 80% of them, that um, we had to get rid of because many of them felt that black children couldn't learn and had no problem saying so in the way that they say it, you know. <laughs> they don't come right out, those people and, you know, stuff like that. But um, we now have a better crop of people teaching. Um, we have a better group of people generally in terms of their commitment to the education of these children. And we have had to really build sort of a cocoon around them because many of them ha don't have the basics that they need. So it's really hard to teach them and especially catch them up five, six years when they haven't had anything to eat all weekend and they come back to school on Monday and they, they're right there at the door at seven o'clock because that's where they're going to get breakfast and they didn't get any for two mm -hmm. days. So that and 
uh, their heats and their lights and their gas. And then we have um, Maureen Taylor, who's the uh, former head of Michigan Welfare Rights, who um, is in our school as the parent coordinator. And we're doing everything we can for all the parents so that they're, they'll have heat in the winter. They have food if they need it. I mean, we do all of that. And the um, I created this, uh, on the other side of the building, this group called Student Support Services. And she's over there as well as the, we have an art therapist who works with the kids and it really, art therapy really unlocks verbal abilities in kids. We have um, counselors, we have you know therapists, we, because these kids, there's a lot of real anger and there's a lot of real pain in these students. And what I'm moving towards right now is I, what I hope will become a national conversation on children with missing fathers. Because I have become convinced in the nearly three years now that I've been there that that is the single most significant problem with our children, that they have absent fathers. Either they're there and they're brutal, or they're gone. And for the most part, they're gone. And I'm talking about more than half, 70%, no dad. Yeah, I, I definitely think that schools and black males as um, Dr. Kanjufu speak to, as Michael Eric Dyson speaks to, as many people have spoke to, even Bill Cosby, as much as he's going through right now in the media, has oh. spoke to. It's, it's something that has always existed and it's been in our check, in, in the history of black America, it's been one of those things and the discussions that is a tough discussion to have. And even schools itself, as far as institutions for opportunities, because I've always felt that as much as I've d I'm doing well in school now, I've always hated school. I always looked at school like it's an institution, not for me as a black male. I felt that every time I walked in school, they're gonna tell me to sit down, be quiet, and everything that I wanna do is something I can't do in school. I've never felt like I could really flourish in an education environment. And this yeah, kind of goes Curry, to- there's, you got, there are some hoops you have to jump through in life, and that's one of them. I, I, you know? I agree, but <laughs> so. but in the discussion I had last month with Dr. Bland, Robert Bland, and he was speaking to the opportunity through education, and some of that mm -hmm. connection can be made as I believe you do provide something like therapy because it becomes a little bit empathetic and you do feel as though you do have a structure to hear. And that was the thing that always drew me towards hip hop because I felt hip hop was one of the few places and spaces where black males had an opportunity to speak whatever they felt like speaking. Yeah, but look at what they're speaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's the thing. Um, we have a history in this country, when you look at what happened in slavery, where mm -hmm. black men were used to sire more slaves with as mm -hmm. many women as they could. Yes. So the notion of a, a man becoming a part of a family and leading that family, um, it just it wasn't there for us. You weren't mm -hmm. allowed to do that. And then... The, we witnessed so much brutality that it became part of our DNA also. So you have men who think being a man is abusing people, hitting them, um, mm -hmm. controlling them. And so at some point, as people who have this experience in this country, we have to come to a place where we decide that we're going to write our own story and stop reading a story somebody else wrote for us and stop reliving that story. And so in, this, in the context of this situation at the school, um, I, can't, I can't go back and fix that with no. all those fathers. I can't do anything about them. But I have those kids in that building for eight hours a day. And so one of the things I'm working on putting together is a process whereby I can help them to understand that they've been told a story. They don't know, as I told one girl the other day, who is tough, tough as they come. 
and punching people in the face and doing all kinds of stuff, right? And mm -hmm. I, I had her in a hearing with her parent, and I, I said to her, you don't, tell me about your dad. Well, this is, this is a, a girl who's suddenly in tears, to big tears rolling down her face. And I said, tell me, what is it about him? Where is he? I don't know. I haven't seen him since I was a baby, you know. And we talked about how that made her feel. And the story there is I don't have a dad, and my dad isn't here because something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. All of that. And, I, and what I said to her is what I say to all of them, which is that's a story you're telling yourself. You don't know. What, he, that he isn't somewhere crying his out, eyes out about not being good enough to be your dad, not having the right resources, not being smart enough, not being anything enough. So for you to tell yourself something's wrong with you, and it was like the light bulb that came on in her. She was like, oh, you know, I never thought that maybe I was thinking the wrong way. And so from that is the kernel of the process that I want to start with our children to help them to understand that the biology of their existence, that half of them is him and half of them is their mom. Uh, and that mm -hmm. does not control their future. I agree. And I, I was going to go as far as to add the second part to even what I was saying. And that was why I was so rich to have Dr. Bland on, because even throughout my journey in schools, one of those things was I would go through schools and even some of the better schools, quote unquote, I went to, it'd be probably a staff of 50 people and only two of them be black males, but mm -hmm. half the students are black males. So you don't even see black male images in any, in any structure where you believe that leadership is something that touches me. In schools, it was another thing that kind of, I think, subconsciously touched to. Now, Dr. Kunjufu and Dr. Umar Johnson speak a little bit more into this, which I don't necessarily think that that is something that needs to sustain, but it's a starting point to at least begin the discussion. And then to allow and ask questions like that, that helps open up some of that dialogue that can go deeper into recommit you to say, all right, I may not necessarily want to do geometry and learn the Pythagorean theorem, but <laughs> this may be a gateway into other opportunities that I want to seek in life now that my superintendent or now that my teacher or now that my counselor has sat down and talked to me and not just looked at me as a number or somebody that won't get it. And a lot of that anger and a lot of that defensiveness that I do see most times in the hip hop circles, especially because when the kids drop out of school, I may run into them at like an open mic or something. And then I'm talking to them about whatever I may talk about. But this is definitely that same thought process. It's that same philosophy. But so much of it can already be changed if you just allow a little bit of empathy and a little bit of that therapy, a little bit of that understanding to say, okay, even though this is a 12-year-old and they may be saying something that makes no sense to me, I'm going to sit and listen to at least allow a discussion to begin. And, and you have to encourage them to speak. So you say, you know, and I understand exactly what you're talking about because that's what they did to all of us. You know, sit down, shut up. We don't do that. You do have to sit down, but you know, you don't have to shut up. I mean, as a matter of fact, we want to hear from them everything that they have to say and everything. We have them now doing some, what is your plan for what do you think would work in the city of Detroit? We have them, you know, thinking about um, change and about how to make change. Mm -hmm. You will always, um, when there's a power structure that you're not part of, you will always come up against roadblocks. And everything that you do 
um, that is progressive in a sense that it speaks to the needs of people other than those who are in power who have everything already, um, you're going to get you're going to hit a roadblock and they're going to try to take you down. They try to take us down. I mean, you, know, you would think all I'm trying to do is teach some kids how to read. You know, you would think I could do that, but. They tried to shut us down. Um, in our first year, we became a Michigan reward school. Now, that's not me. That's the Michigan Department of Education, the same people that had the school under state supervision. In one year, not even a year, nine months, we became a reward school. And so you would think that would make a difference. People would be saying, yay, you, uh, no, get out. We, we, then they, they took out our whole board and mm -hmm. um, told me I had to report to Larry Curley and Mo, whoever over here on the side, you know, and I was, uh, no, that's not going to happen. So, you know, mm -hmm. so I know enough to know how to stay up all night and write a complaint and a motion for an injunction and get one. And um, we are now um, authorized by the Bay Mills Native American tribe from the UP. And uh, they're wonderful people and they understand our mission and they understand um, and they want to help us with it. And that actually is the other thing I've always admired about you as far as when it looks at anything politically and I'm such a sports fanatic. I think you have a lot of fight. You're ready to go anytime something is is ready to go there. Even when it comes to something, especially on behalf of other people that you feel like have been in your corner. And you even have a team of people that I've known for years and you'll fight for your team and you're mm -hmm. such a, a fighter for that. Where do you think that spirit comes from in you? Um, I have always had a desire to, you know, when I was a little kid, I always, my dream, other people were dreaming about a new bike. You know, I was dreaming about I was going to build a big house, like a house so big you couldn't see the end of it. And I was going to put all the poor people and the drunk people in there. Probably came from my dad was an alcoholic, but so all the like drunk people and all Josephine the poor people. Baker kind right. of I was going to feed school. them, you know, I was going to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And I've always been that person. And so um, my mission, you know, is, is pure and it's real. And so when people come after me to get in the way of that mission, I'm not in there so I can get some money or buy some more shoes or any of that mess because they're not going to put one pair of shoes in that coffin with you when you're on your way out of here. You will not hook up a Brinks truck to your hearse. So, you know, my sense of it is I'm fighting for, I'm doing God's work and I'm fighting for what's right. And mm -hmm. so when people come after me in that situation, that, what I was telling you about, the way my mind works, how do I get around this, that's immediately where I, that's my default. How do I stop this? And I will fight them. Um, mm -hmm. Their reason had nothing to do with what's right. They want to stop a school that's a reward school where the kids are doing well. I, my first year, I had a 98% graduation rate from nothing to 98%. We got audited for everything because they audit the top and the bottom. The school had always been the bottom, but you know we were the top. And no findings on any of the audits because there's not going to be any because there's not going to be anything going on in there that's wrong. And it, you, one of the stories you would love is the first year I'm there, they, of course, you know, they're all upset, right, everybody in there, because change is tough. And they don't know me. They don't know what I'm going to do. So there's some teachers in the hallway talking about how they had to call the you know, Department of Education because they didn't know what was going on with the money. Oh, no, you're not. No. Better than you have tried to take me down. That's not happening. So I found out who said it, and um, I called the FBI, and I said, um, there's someone over here who thinks I'm stealing money. You need to come and talk to them. They were like, okay. You know, <laughs> so um, Andy Arena, great guy, by the way. He's really, he was very helpful. So he comes over, and I bring her in. She doesn't know why she's coming in. I say, Miss so-and-so, sit down here. This is 
Andy Arena from the FBI, and this is so-and-so from the Detroit Crime Commission. And um, I understand you think I'm stealing money, so I want you to tell them everything you know about me. And you will not face any retaliation because you're a good teacher and you will be able to keep your job. So please tell them everything. Shut the door and leave. She was like. Yeah. <laughs> but see, that's, that's the Sheriff McPhail I know with so much fight. And with all that fight, does it ever, does it ever get to a point where you say to yourself, all right, I got to fight again. Like, does a, does a moment of vulnerability come where it's like, okay, every time I got to go through this, like, when, when do you, what, what keeps you committed when it's like, all right, again, what's, what's getting you up where you're lacing back up the, the bootstraps and you're going back through that door? Those children, because I know that if I'm not there, it will go right back to what it was. Now, I'm not saying I'm the only person that can do it, but I am the only person who has done it up to this point. Mm -hmm. And it takes somebody who's hands-on and who will spend 10 hours or 12 hours a day and who will follow up on everything to make sure that they get what they need to get. And this whole, you know, it's not, when you look at across the country what's happening in schools, the dumbing down of students, especially in the inner cities, and the minimum amounts of money that they give for educating students in the inner city versus the suburbs all around inner cities. Mm -hmm. You gotta know what's going on there. Whether it's an intentional conspiracy and anybody's sitting down and saying it or not, it's happening and no one's doing anything about it. So in our school, where you know my team works, uh, we have a, a process in place that focuses in on the individual achievement of every student. I have what I call an individual student learning plan. I can tell you when your little kid comes in the door where he's reading at and in terms of the scale. And in one month, I can tell you where he is that in a month. I can tell you every month how that student's progress is. And it's, it's a lot of work to do it, but it is what you have to do. And as we wrap up and come to a close, and I know this gives the people a peek into what I see with Sharon McPhail, and we could go for hours because we didn't even get into some <laughs> of this stuff, but brilliant, driven, and a fighter, everything that I see, and I hope you get this as a Detroit is different listener. It's a couple just standard questions I ask people all the time, just throw at them. One I actually just added, because we're in the Motor City and I'm going with this car theme. What was the very first car you owned? A Gremlin. I don't even know what a Gremlin <laughs> is, but. An uh, AMC, it was, used to be called American I, Motors before uh -huh. it got taken over by Chrysler. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a little car with a hatchback. It was the first hatchback ever uh -huh. made. And it was called a Gremlin. How long did you have it? Uh, three years. Okay, that was a minute though for your first that car. That was talk about activism. It wasn't working when I first got it. So I put on a pair of Daisy Duke shorts and got a box of lemons and sat out in front of the dealership. And everybody who tried to go into the dealership, I said, if you want a lemon, I'll give you one for free. So they called the police. And, oh, man, yeah. and I, I was at a meter, had my police. dime in the meter, <laughs> had my dime in the meter. They finally came out and said, okay, uh, we'll fix your car. Um, just give it to us here. Take this car to drive. I mean, they fixed my car. That's okay. what I did. I, I figured out how to impact them because they wouldn't fix the car and it was brand new. Mm, so, ain't that something. <laughs> I have a picture of me. Of the, it was a newspaper like the Michigan Citizen. It was called the Bay State Banner. <laughs> they came over and took a picture of me sitting on top of the car with a big box of lemons, handing one to somebody. <laughs> oh, man, I, I would not suggest doing that at a dealership today. <laughs> Ain't no telling, especially around they here. Might they might arrest you. do sell a car. Yeah. Arrest you. <laughs> it was in Boston. but They may arrest you and mm -hmm. then take you to the back of the dealership. Yeah, that was my first car. If you could rename Woodward after anybody else, who would you name it? 
Only Coleman Young deserves to have Woodward named after him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And who's your favorite music artist? Because that's how we're going to start and close the podcast. Hmm. My favorite music artist. Probably Nancy Wilson. Okay. Old timey. Oh, I like Nancy Wilson. <laughs> love Nancy Wilson. She's, uh, I mean, it's, I just love music, period. But Nancy Wilson and a lot of the older jazz artists, I think that they build a rapport, and that's what I've been looking to do more with my performance, where they give context throughout mm-hmm. the story of their songs. Yeah. So when Nancy Wilson is on stage or I look at the performances on YouTube, it's not like I'm going to a Nancy Wilson concert. She'll give a lot of context to all of the songs, who were the people that she worked with, and... Mm-hmm. But I, I really so think much. the best voice that has ever been is Aretha Franklin. I agree with you there. Um, I, I don't know a voice, anything like that, anywhere else in the world. And, um, you know, I don't know her personally. I've met her a few times, but um, I've always thought that, and she still has it. She still has it, even now, you know. So, um, but, uh, you know, a lot of singing now isn't really singing. <laughs> well, yeah, I can, it's, that it's, debate definitely could be made. Yeah. Now, as a person in music, it's a lot of different things being done. But in that connection, I got to keep my ear to whatever <laughs> is new. Got to keep your ear to it. Can you get the B word out of the songs? Can we, can we as have far them as rappers, stop? That's can we a have whole them stop discussion. dogging out women? Can we please? Well, <laughs> I would say that some of that same pain in that same context, you have to look at that same male so as much Mm -hmm. as you say that as as a black woman you say that okay where are the fathers a lot of the men grow up with that same pain in the household because a lot of the mothers are missing that father too so it's a lot of animosity between mother and son that exist in a lot of the households and let me i gotta give i gotta give this full i got you know i got thoughts on this theory and i'm gonna give you context for this and then you have that animosity and then you also have the animosity of just being a young male going through a a, in puberty and looking at women and as you see the woman and you're not necessarily but you're heading in a direction that has nothing to do with what i said no it is (laughs) because i don't blame the men for this at all it is i'm gonna i'm gonna definitely say that okay because nobody's putting a gun to snoop doggy dog's head and making him say the lyrics that he says but no i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the whole fathering thing i don't blame them for the situation Mm -hmm. but it's still like a it 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 connects it connects together because as you look at the rap artist and then he's making it and he's making something that can be seen definitely as derogatory towards women. It's a lot of the animosity between his mother, between the, his first girlfriend he couldn't get, between him not necessarily knowing how to express himself, between him not necessarily knowing how to communicate. So that anger comes out in profanity. And then you have to look at that kid that's 17, 18, 19, especially like like right now you look at the guys that, uh, the, the rappers from Detroit that rap with that guy that came up with um, like really popular, the, the, uh, our dog H's, I guess that's what we'll say. Mm-hmm. And right now they're like nationally exposed artists through Young Jeezy's record label. And I've known some of these guys since they were like really young. And then I'll talk to them and they say, oh, that's the pro-black guy. So that's what a lot of rappers know me as. So I'll tell them and I'll laugh and I'll say, okay, now nah, you don't necessarily know that the platform that you're on as a 17 year old, 18 year old, 
is not the way that you're going to think. And it's nobody really speaking, speaking to them and sitting down with them, providing context without the anger. I, I think that more forums between people such as yourself that can give some more context so that they can see women in a different light, see relationships in a different light, will change the way that they will do songs and create records. Because as I interact with them, nobody's necessarily maybe me and a couple other people are presenting something different to them and then what they see through a lot of the anger comes out and it is derogatory it is full of violence it is full of a tale and a story that can be deemed as something that's completely negative because it's a but lot of cries out for pain those same people you're talking about i give them i believe they have tremendous power to fix all of this they can turn that around just like they turned it that way they can turn it the other way and talk about the way the general world that we live in disrespects our women. They could do that. They could turn that anger where it belongs on the people that are not only keeping them down, but are disrespecting their women. And that would make a huge difference. I'm going to use this analogy that I've used before. Imagine El Haj Malik El Shabazz when he wasn't even Malcolm X, when he was Detroit Red. Mm-hmm and giving him a platform where he could have created a record and speak, it would have sounded just the same way that a lot of this hip hop sounds. But it was a people throughout his lifetime, especially his brother, being instrumental to present other teachings to him in the nation and understanding where he was at and knowing the potential of where he can go. So it's people like Yousef Shakur and sometimes myself that can reach out and interact with them. But so many of these young black men don't even feel like they even have a voice or anybody listening to them. And they do have the potential to change, but some of that potential to change, they need to have someone empathetic to even say, okay, you're doing something wrong because it mm -hmm. immediately goes to defensive, mm -hmm. which I don't even believe that same argument. Like nobody talks about Arnold Schwarzenegger for shooting people in a movie. Cause that's not, it's not a good defense, but mm -hmm. that is the immediate defense. Nobody's ever interacting with most of these people in this social circle. So what they're interacting with and how they're interacting is only leading to more of a defensive nature when they are making the music. So it's a platform there, but remember that most of these guys, you can just look at it like they're Detroit Red of El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. So we can be a congruent to create the Malcolm X and then create the El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. Remember what happened to Malcolm X? Well, yeah, that was later <laughs> on down okay. the line. But that wasn't necessarily <laughs> from his, and I say at the point when he was assassinated, that was when he was at the most open and the most humble to interact with most people. That's but when he they needed, get you. But he needed to have someone at least sit down. His brother, when he found the Nation of Islam, had to sit down and show him, like, okay, look, Malcolm, you're in the wrong path. You have a lot of anger. You have a lot of pain. You have a lot of hate in your heart. And let me explain this to you. Because most of these young guys are 16, 17, 18, 19, and they have pain towards their fathers, towards their mothers, towards almost everybody. So the same way that they're derogatory towards men, women, they're derogatory towards men. Mm -hmm. uh, it's It's... And this same thing in this platform they're, is, is they're hurting, a different image. They're hurting themselves. I mean, you, you yeah. know, acid yeah. eats its own container first. And so when you have, when you're filled with that, then that what you're doing is eating away the inside of yourself. And it takes only a decision. A deci and it's as simple as this. And people may not believe this, but I don't know if you've ever listened to Adi Ashanti or any of the spiritual leaders that talk about changing um, people from the inside out. But one of the things that he says is that if you 
tell yourself a story, and every all of that is a story. I'm angry at my mother. I'm angry at my father. You don't know anything about what they went through, or because they don't tell you. You're a kid, so you know there are so many things, so many assumptions being made mm -hmm. by them that cause them to feel this way, and it's unproductive. I mean, if it were something that worked for them and that made things better for them or somebody, it would make sense to do it, but it, it just poisons their, their daily lives. Sure. And so you have to make a decision not to carry all of that crap around with you on your back like a bag of rocks, because if you do that, then you will never be as productive as you can be because that holds you back. And so they, you, you know, it's just a decision. I'm going to see things differently. If you're unwilling to see things differently, then you won't ever do it. But, but to some that do have the option, they're not even necessarily exposed to the belief of if I do accept or see something different, what will be the outcome? So I do agree that that reality obviously exists. Mm -hmm. But people but live out of two so things, many one of two things. You know what okay. they are? Fear and love. You either live in fear or you live in love. And most of us, unfortunately, live in, in fear. fear. Yeah. And so we have all kinds of stories going on in our minds, and we force ourselves through so much suffering, and there's no reason for it because you don't know. Most of the time, and I learned this, uh, you know, years even in the mayor's race, I always had this feeling that I knew what people were thinking because they had a look on their faces. I don't know what they're thinking. And ordinarily, if I said something to them, then whatever fear they had about me would disappear, and I could see that it was really a very positive. There's two sides of it, you know. It's not negative; it's positive. But it takes the the touch. It takes the touch in and order for them to turn. So now I would say we're kind of saying the same thing because mm -hmm. what I'm more so saying is a lot of these young men aren't being touched mm -hmm. by. Mm -hmm someone and if so yeah. it's just for a short stint if there's so, a dad there he's brutal and you know mm -hmm. and the mom is you know you see a lot of moms who are angry and resentful mm -hmm. because they have been left to take care of these kids by themselves but all of this comes from a place that doesn't exist anymore it, it really when you look at it historically comes from slavery and there it doesn't exist anymore and you ens you're enslaved only because you decide to be nobody can make you inferior unless you give them permission and Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt. So, you know, so really that um, that was her quote and it's absolutely true. And, it, and so much of this is as we like shift into my next most theme is philosophy deep into this, because this is definitely philosophical as we talk about what is the reality mm -hmm. and that whole idea of the metaphor of the elephant that's chained. And then you finally release the chain from the elephant and the elephant still doesn't go outside of that zone. Yeah. So it's many of those fears too of what is reality and what could be reality. And we can talk for hours about this, but I definitely <laughs> like the ending portion because next time when I, when I do have my hip hop portion, which I plan on bringing awesome Dre in when I do that, it'd be a great interview. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure that you check that out. And I would strongly urge of you, especially being somebody that's interacting with so many teenagers and young people, because I'm more surprised that it's really the kids in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade that follow rap way more than mm -hmm. the kids that are even in the and 11th, And they can 12th. memorize every exactly. single word of it. So you can do connect. that, you can read. <laughs> I, would say, I would say reach out, get through some of the swears, and try to, if that can be a gateway to connect, I urge all teachers, all 
principals or anybody interacting with students interact with that hip hop if you can connect because it can be a gateway and then you can give context to a whole lot of that because that's what's missing in a lot of the hip hop stories it's the parable of yes you have the drug dealer story but the drug dealer how I've known the drug dealer is not generally told in hip hop it's, it's the Jay Z story it's like I was a hustler and then I end up being on Wall Street I don't know that guy I, I know the guy that was a drug dealer and now he's strung out on heroin that story's rarely told Mm -hmm. So I, I say it's a gateway. It's another one of those things. So as much as nothing's really new under the sun, nothing's really new under the sun. And these are stories that uh, most older people are familiar with that are being told in hip hop. And they have their own ways of telling those same stories because mm -hmm. heroin has been impacting the black community since the 40s, maybe even the 30s almost. But it's but it's because it's different. people in general, people mm -hmm. who are black, people who are not black are depressed. Mm -hmm. They really are. And if you're not, if you're a conscious human being and you look around the world and you see millions of children dying every day from starvation, you ought to be depressed. And so, you know, if, if it's that or it's something else, they don't have enough stuff or whatever their reasons are for being depressed. People are sad and they're depressed and they will do what they have to do to get away from that. So you have kids who will come to school high on marijuana, methamphetamine, and uh, Oxycontin, and by the way, those all three were found in one of my students this week when we tested him, um, because he's trying to run from the sadness. You will never run from the sadness, you have to change the sadness. So those are some of the ways that, that we, we don't run from hip hop, we don't run from any of it, we just try to focus in and dig deep inside of these kids and see what it is that's causing their sadness, because and I'm telling you, I just know from the experience I've had with three years of a thousand almost of them every year that um, a relationship with their parents, and particularly their dad, is key to, and even if that relationship is, is internal and he's not around, they have to build that relationship and it has to be a positive one because it is from there that their self-esteem grows. And you can't learn without self-esteem. You really can't. If you don't think you can, you can't. I agree. So it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? All right. Yes. We're going to leave on that point. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is going to be a great interview. <laughs>